If you have a Bible, take it out and find Luke chapter 6. Luke 6. There's some notes in the outline or in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along. This is week three in our study of parables, and we're looking at a familiar story, I think, to most of us. It's one of the few parables of Jesus that has a song set to it, and I thought about singing you the song this morning, but I decided I'd pass, and you can just sing it yourself all afternoon. Start off with a definition of a parable, just to remind you, a definition for parables. Parables are stories taken from real life that teach moral or spiritual truth. So they're not some sort of crazy allegory that you have to decode and figure out what represents what. There's no hidden meanings here. And it's not a fable where you take a story from the realm of fantasy to teach a lesson, but it's just an everyday, ordinary story that Jesus used to teach moral and spiritual truths. And the parable that we're looking at this morning is a short one, and it's a familiar story, but it's one where Jesus teaches a very, very important spiritual truth. You know, some of the parables that we've looked at or that we will look at, they're a little bit hard for us to wrap our arms around. And sometimes it's hard for us to figure out a parable because the culture is so different. We live thousands of years later. Uh, We live in a quote-unquote advanced technological society. And so some of the things Jesus talks about, we're just not all that familiar with. He starts talking about leaven. And you may have some idea of what leaven is, but you may not be all that familiar with using it on a day-to-day basis or not using it and what the difference would be. Jesus may talk about like lamps and wicks and trimming your wicks and being ready and we say, well, I don't know, that sounds like camping or something. We do that every now and then, but we're not super familiar with those things. Or maybe Jesus describes a wedding party where you have to go and put on a special garment to go to the wedding party and you say, well, that's not like any wedding party I've ever been to. Sometimes the cultural difference is you kind of have to use your brain and wrap your arms around things and try to figure out exactly what Jesus is trying to say. The parable this morning is very familiar to us, especially after this last week. Jesus is basically talking about rain and flooding, flash flooding, and the danger of flash flooding. And I don't think we need a whole lot of commentary on that this morning. We're pretty familiar with it. We're going to read the parable in just a minute. Let me just sort of set the stage by reminding you of a few things that you already know, or maybe sharing with you a few thoughts that you don't know. Luke 6 and Matthew 7 are parallel passages. Luke 6, 46 to 49, and Matthew 7, 24 to 27. They're parallel passages. They tell the exact same story. And what's interesting is that there's slight differences. And we're going to look at Luke's version, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew a little bit later. But they're just a little bit different. And Bible scholars come up with a couple of different explanations on why they don't match exactly word for word. One explanation is that Matthew and Luke are recording the same sermon. They're talking about the exact same message that Jesus preached, only they remember it a little bit different. Or they're getting their information from somebody who remembers it a little bit different. And so that maybe makes sense. If you went out to eat lunch and somebody said, well, what was the sermon about? You could maybe give them a sort of the general idea and somebody else at your table could also give them the general idea, but you probably wouldn't say it exactly word for word. And so maybe it's just differences in how they remembered the same sermon. That's a possibility. I think it's more likely that Matthew and Luke, as they describe this parable, are talking about two different sermons that Jesus preached. So we know it in Matthew as part of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've heard of the Sermon on the Mount, this famous sermon that Jesus preached to a large crowd of people. But you realize Jesus preached more than one sermon, 
right? And you realize that preachers use the same stories over and over and over again, right? You know that. If you've listened to me very long, you know I only have so many stories and I'm going to start repeating them at some point. All preachers do that and Jesus did that. He went different places, he talked to different crowds and he told the same stories and maybe with one crowd as opposed to another, he put a little bit of a different emphasis on it or he told it slightly differently and that's my take on it. And you can look, if you want to just dig into this a little bit more, you can look at Matthew 5.1. Matthew 5.1 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew tells us that Jesus went on the side of a mountain to teach a great multitude, and you can compare that to Luke 6.17. It's the beginning of the sermon in Luke's gospel, and Luke says that Jesus went down into a broad, flat, level place to preach a sermon. So I think he's just describing two different sermons. Here's something important that they agree on. Okay? Matthew and Luke both tell us that Jesus was talking to the crowds. This is not one of the parables that was only given to the disciples. This is not one of the parables that Jesus told in Jerusalem directly to the religious leaders. This was a parable Jesus shared with a large crowd of people who would come to listen to him talk. And you need to understand that. You need to understand that the people who would come out to listen to Jesus, they'd heard about his miracles, they'd heard about some of the things he'd been saying, rumors had been spreading about this guy, and they were curious. They were intrigued. They wanted to know a little bit more about Jesus, but they hadn't reached the point, most of the people in the crowds, they hadn't reached the point where they were ready to commit their life to following Jesus. And so you've got a group of, let's just say, interested but non-committal people a little bit on the fence. And Jesus knows that's who they are and knows that's where their hearts are at. And he tells this story directly to these people and where they're at. We'll just put it this way. The parable is not a warning for those who openly rebel against Jesus' teaching. He told other parables warning people who rebelled against his teaching. In my Sunday school class this morning, we sort of are going out of order in our our Sunday school lesson, but we talked about the parable of uh, the vineyard and the wicked tenants, right? That's a parable Jesus told directly to people who were bold-faced rejecting who he claimed to be, and he was talking directly to them. That's not who he's talking to in this parable. Jesus is talking to, he's warning those who profess faith but refuse to follow as disciples. He's talking to people who are curious and interested, and maybe they're willing to put their toe in the water a little bit, but they're not ready to jump all the way in. And I just got to say at the outset, we'll come back to this idea in a minute, but what a parable for the United States of America and the Bible Belt. What a warning for a bunch of people like you and me who live in a country and in a part of a country where it's still socially acceptable and and positively thought of to go to church and attend church and participate in church and how easy it is to go to church and participate in church and be around church and really not follow Jesus and to be non-committal and to try to ride the fence a little bit. What a great parable Jesus tells us that ought to strike us in our hearts. Here's the big idea. It's really simple. Those who respond to the gospel with life-changing faith will survive the final judgment. You respond to the gospel with life-changing faith, you survive the final judgment. You may fill that blank in and say, well, isn't all faith life-changing? And we'll come back to that idea and say, yes, all faith is life-changing, but because we live in a sort of confused part of the world, we need to clarify 
Not just any faith, life-changing faith. You'll survive the final judgment. And those who refuse to follow Christ in genuine discipleship will be destroyed on the last day. So you can see from the big idea, it's a serious parable. It's a weighty parable. It's Jesus talking about eternal matters that impact me and that impact you. And so we're going to read it. And I know that it's familiar to you, but we're going to pray for ears to hear what Jesus is saying. Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Father, we know this story. It's familiar to us. We've heard it, many of us, from childhood. We've sung songs about it. Father, I think most of us in the room could retell it with accuracy. We just simply pray this morning for ears to hear the warning that Jesus is offering us. We pray for humility to examine our lives and our hearts and to see where we stand in relation to what Jesus is saying. Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll show you a picture of the Big Thompson River. How many of you think you could get used to that after the week that we've had? Crazy hail and hot temperatures, 110 degrees yesterday. That looks pretty nice. Big Thompson River. That's uh, in Colorado. And it looks like a peaceful, serene, nice place. But let me tell you about an interesting day in the life of the Big Thompson River. This is July 31st, 1976. A thunderstorm built up over the Big Thompson River, really over the Big Thompson Canyon where the river flows. And all accounts say that this thunderstorm, you know how thunderstorms just pop up over Odessa, they just sort of come out of nowhere. It just sort of popped up out of nowhere and then it just sat still right over the canyon and it didn't move. And I dug around in a couple of old newspapers from Colorado and I found different, different uh, stats. One newspaper said, July 31st, 1976, it rained a year's worth of rain in 70 minutes over this canyon. Another newspaper said it rained 12 inches in four hours. So I don't know how you split the difference between the two or what's normal, but let's just say it rained a lot, July 31st, 1976, Big Thompson Canyon, rained like crazy. At about 9 o'clock p.m., a 20-foot wall of water came rushing through the canyon, 20 feet tall, blowing through this canyon. There was about 3,500 people in the canyon that day, camping, had their tents set up, fishing, all that sort of stuff. By the time the water raced through the canyon, it destroyed 400 cars, 418 homes, 52 businesses, most of Route 34, which you can see in that picture in the middle. It moved a 275-ton boulder. Just, I thought about that a lot this week. A 275-ton rock. They said this rock was about the size of a house. 
and it just moved it right down the canyon. 3,500 people in the canyon, 250 injured, 800 helicoptered to safety, 143 died, and five never found. The most interesting stat I read about the people in this flood is they thought that one man, for years they said that six people were never found. Six people lost, never identified. And they found one of the men 20 years later in Oklahoma and had to go back and scratch him off the list and say, no, it wasn't six, it was five. I don't know how you hide out in Oklahoma for 20 years, but this guy did it. That's an extreme example of flooding. You know, that doesn't happen every day. Even today, it's the deadliest natural disaster in Colorado state history. So this is not the kind of thing that happens all the time. But I just mention it to you as an example of the power of water and the danger of flooding. Especially when you live in a relatively dry place. And sometimes if you're in a flat area, flash floods can pop up quickly. Or sometimes if you're in a hilly area, water can pile up really quickly. And the people Jesus was talking to lived in that kind of terrain. It really isn't all that unlike West Texas. There's a lot of broad, flat places where flash floods can pop up quick. There's some rocky, craggly places where water can really pile up quick when it all starts running downhill. And the people that Jesus is talking to understood the danger of a flood. And Jesus takes something so familiar to them, something they would have seen over and over and over again in their lives, especially people who didn't build sturdy buildings necessarily like we build today. They didn't have all the construction tools and heavy equipment that we have. There were shortcuts to be taken. These people understood the danger of what Jesus is talking about, and he takes something so familiar to them and he teaches them an important spiritual lesson with it. And I want to give you one warning right off the bat. I want you to resist the urge or the temptation to allegorize the parable. Okay, I've warned you about this almost every week where you start looking at parables and you say, but what does this really mean? What does this really mean? And I think one of the biggest dangers in this parable is that you look at it and you say, okay, Jesus is talking about storms and how to survive a storm. He must be talking about how to get through hard times in life. Sometimes we call difficulties in life like a storm, right? You're facing a trial and you say, I'm just sort of stuck in this storm. And I just want you to understand, Jesus is not telling you how to endure, quote unquote, the storms of life. That is not the point of this parable when Jesus talks about two different types of foundations. He's not saying to you, look, there's going to be tough days ahead and you want to be able to smile all the way through it and make it through and be okay. And so this is how you make it through hard times in life. That is not at all what he's talking about. Jesus very clearly is telling you how to survive the final judgment. That's the point of the parable. Don't reduce it, and pardon the pun, water it down by turning it into, well, this is how you get through difficult times in life. Jesus just says you got to make sure you have a good foundation so you can get through the hard times and come out smiling on the other side. Not at all what we're talking about. Jesus has way bigger fish to fry in this parable. He's not talking to a group of people, and he's worried that they're going to face hard times and falter in their faith. He's talking to a group of people who don't have real faith. And he's saying to them, look, let's talk about the hard times later. Let's just talk right now about whether or not you genuinely have faith in me and whether or not you are going to survive the final judgment. And I say that because in Matthew's version, 
when Matthew tells this parable, it comes way at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can go back and look at Matthew 7 later. Let me just summarize the last few paragraphs in Matthew 7 as Matthew's wrapping it up. He says there's two gates, two roads you can travel in life. One is narrow and one is broad. One leads to life and one leads to destruction. There's two destinies. There's two ways to experience the final judgment. Jesus says there's two types of trees. One tree bears fruit and the other doesn't bear fruit. And the one that bears fruit is great. You want it. You keep it. It's awesome. But the one that does not bear fruit just gets thrown into the fire. Jesus says there's two types of faith. He says there's the kind of faith where people on the last day, they stand before Jesus and they say, hey, we know you. And Jesus looks back at them and he says, but I don't know you. Then there's other people who have faith in Jesus, and Jesus knows them. He knows their names. He, he has a relationship with them. They've walked with him. There's two types of faith. And then at the end of that, Matthew 7, he says there's two types of foundations you can build your life on. There's one that's built on the rock, and there's one that's just sort of built on the, the loose, sandy dirt. And one's going to endure on the last day, and one's going to be totally washed away. So you understand when we put it in context, you understand how Matthew included it, and you understand what Jesus is saying in Luke 6. We're not talking about this is how you get through difficult days. This is how you get through a dark season of life. We're saying this is how you survive the final judgment. That's the point. Talking about eternal matters. And what Jesus says is such a simple story. He basically says there's two inadequate responses to Jesus. We're going to talk about them. There's two ways you can respond to Jesus that are not adequate when it comes to you surviving the final judgment. And I want to just tell you a short story before we jump in and talk about those. Not too long ago, I graduated seminary for the second time, last time. And it was outside, it was on the lawn here at Southern Seminary. And uh, I don't think that was the exact year, uh, picture from the year I graduated, but it looked just like that. And we sat there, and uh, it was the best graduation ever because it was thundering in the distance, and they thought that we were going to get rained out. So they called the names, like, super fast. Like, you had to run across the stage, and the guy got ready to give his message, and he said, I'm going to give you the Cliff's Notes version because we're going to get rained out. So we were in and out done. It was awesome. One of the things he said I'll always remember, he's looking on this big group of graduates, and he says, look, Some of you guys were going to send to the ends of the world. And you're going to tell people about Jesus who have never heard about Jesus. They know nothing about the Bible, nothing about the gospel. And we, on this day, are sending you out to take the gospel to them. And your job is to be faithful in that, to take the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ to the ends of the earth. And he said, others of you sitting out here, We're going to send you out to urban areas, big metropolitan cities that maybe once used to be Christian, but now we would call them post-Christian. And there's not a whole lot of churches, and the churches that are there are typically small, and they're not very vibrant. And we're sending you to be like a shot in the arm. Like you're going basically to a non-Christian place, a post-Christian place. And he said to those guys, it's going to be hard. Because the places you're going are not open and receptive to the gospel. The Bible makes claims about truth and morality that many people in those places don't want to hear. And he just said, it's going to be a difficult mission, but you've got to be faithful to the message and you've got to preach the gospel and trust God to change hearts. 
So we got the missionaries. You got the guys going to the big cities, New York City and Philadelphia and places like that. And then he said, a lot of you are going to end up in the Bible Belt. And you're going to be surrounded by people who think that they are Christians. And they're not. And you cannot let them be comfortable in their cultural Christianity. It's a different mission field. It's not the same as going around the world where they've never heard about Jesus. It's not going to a certain part of the country where they're just anti-Jesus. He said, some of you are going to places where they're very comfortable with the idea of Jesus. They just don't follow Jesus. They don't listen to him. And they don't obey him. And your job is to grab people by the spiritual shirt collars and shake as much sense into them as you can. And I always think about that. The places I've pastored have all been in what you would term the Bible Belt. And I know that for some of you, you come to church and the things that we talk about and the way we talk about them, sometimes you leave Sunday morning church thinking, I know some of you do this, you leave thinking, I don't know if I'm saved. Like, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I just don't know if I'm living up to that. I don't know if that's really me. I, don't... I just want you to understand something. My goal in preaching is never, never to scare you into being uncertain about your salvation. It's never to make you question the, the goodness of God or the faithfulness of God or the promises of God or the grace of God. I want you to be secure in those things. God is gracious. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He can save and he loves to save. I don't ever want you to doubt those things. But I also don't want people to come into our worship services and just sort of be coddled and patted on the spiritual back and leave thinking it's all okay when it's not. I don't want people to come in and say, well, I've got this sort of building built and no one has the guts to tell them, well, you didn't build it on the rock. It's all a waste and it's all going to be washed away on the last day. And so the challenge for us is not to question God's grace or his mercy. It's not to doubt whether or not he really will save his people. But it's to examine ourselves and to say, have I built on the right foundation? Have I built on the rock? And so two inadequate responses to Jesus you need to be aware of and examine your life for. Number one, it's not enough to simply listen to Jesus. It's not enough to simply listen to Jesus. In Matthew 7, the parable goes like this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It's a little bit different than Luke. And the contrast that Matthew is setting up or that Jesus is setting up as Matthew describes it is there are some people who hear and obey and there are other people who hear only. And it's not enough just to hear and to listen if you don't follow that up with life-changing obedience. And I hope you see how this makes sense with the people that Jesus was talking to when he, when he said it in the first place. He's looking at a big crowd of people who have come to check him out. They want to know what this guy's all about. Maybe they want to see some tricks. Maybe they want to hear if he's going to say anything offensive or funny or they want to be entertained. Who knows what their motive is? Jesus looks at him and he says, just imagine the audacity of a human being saying this. 
It's great you came out to listen to me, but it's not enough unless you do everything that I'm telling you to do. It's not enough. And if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you're not going to make it through the final judgment. You'd be like a man who built his mansion on a pile of sand and it all gets washed away. And you won't make it. It's not enough just to listen. Jesus says you've got to listen and do what I say. And so I just pulled out a few things from the Gospels that challenge me and I hope that challenge you. And I just will ask a few questions here. It's not enough to listen. You've got to listen and obey. When Jesus says make disciples, are we listening or are we obeying? When Jesus says, deny yourself daily and take up your cross and follow me, are we just listening to that? Are we actually obeying what he says to do? When Jesus says, I want you to love your neighbor just like you love yourself, do we say, oh, that's nice, and listen only? When Jesus says, do whatever you need to do to deal with sin. And you say, when did he say that? He said, pluck out your eye if you need to do it, cut off your arm if you need to do it, whatever you need to do. Deal with the sin in your life. Do we listen to that or do we do it? And I'm not telling you to go buy a hacksaw because that's not the point. The point is, do you do anything about it? Do you do whatever it takes to deal with the sin in your life or do you just say, oh, that's nice? When Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat. Don't worry. Your Father loves you and He will take care of you. Do you listen to that? Or do you actually do what He says? I mean, we could just go on and on, but you get the idea. Jesus is looking at people just like us. Church-going people. Good people. Decent people. And He's saying to them, It's not enough just to listen. If you think that because you spend Sunday mornings in this room, you have a ticket punch for heaven, you're a listener. And that's it. And Jesus says it's not enough. You've built on the wrong foundation. You might be sitting in the right place Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m., but you have totally built your life on the wrong foundation. So it's not enough to listen only. Secondly, It's not enough simply to pay lip service to Jesus. And this is an added detail that Luke includes. And if you go back to Matthew, you'll find the same detail included in a different place. Jesus starts off the parable like this in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you? Lord is a wide-ranging term in Jesus' day. It could mean sir. It could be just like a title of respect. It could go all the way on the other spectrum to being a title for God, for deity, the Lord from the Old Testament. Wherever you fell on that spectrum, these people are calling Jesus Lord. They, They acknowledge that he's respectable. They acknowledge that he's a good teacher. They acknowledge that he has power and some authority. They may even acknowledge his deity. And Jesus says, yeah, but why do you call me Lord, Lord? You acknowledge these things, but then 
nothing changes. Why do you go to church and sing the song, but then nothing changes? I mean, Tyler's up there, and I know the music's good, and the ladies are singing, and Brady's hitting the right notes, and it's all good, but are you just caught up in the music? Like, Why are you saying, Lord, Lord, but you're not actually doing the things that I'm telling you to do? This is what some people recently, I like this term, some people have called this decisionism. I've never heard that till recently. Maybe it's been around, but... I just came across it recently. Decisionism. It's the idea in the Bible Belt especially, and we've exported it all around the world. Go on a mission trip with us. You'll see it. It started with us. Decisionism is the idea that all you have to do to go to heaven is say the right formulaic prayer. Go through the prayer, say the words, and you go to heaven. And you hear it all over the place. All over the place in the Bible Belt. You hear it at youth camps every summer, every summer, over and over and over again. If you went to youth camp growing up, you probably heard it. Somebody stood up on the stage, they preached a nice message, and they said, what you need to do now is you need to pray to invite Jesus into your life. I want you to pray with me. And they go through a thing, and as soon as it's done, they say, congratulations, you're going to heaven. There's no plan for discipleship. There's no plan for follow-up. It's just you said the right words, so you get to go. Funny that when you go on a mission trip, even to the other side of the world in Kenya, we'll go into a a home or we'll go into a classroom or go somewhere. And this is what the, the pastors that we're working with have been trained to do by other missionaries, by years of Bible Belt Christians going to Kenya. They walk into the room. They say, children, repeat after me. They go through the prayer. Then they say, if you said that, raise your hand. And the hands go up and they count all the hands. And then they look at us so proud and they say, look, 50 people got saved today. And we look at them and we say, you missed it. That's not how it works. Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you to do. You hear that at funerals all the time. You go to somebody's funeral and the pastor preaches them right into heaven and the reason they preach them right into heaven is because at some point in their life they invited Jesus into their heart and you know the person and you know that they were not a follower of Jesus Christ. And everybody at that funeral leaves thinking, well, all you got to do is say the right prayer and invite Jesus into your life and you get to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do with the rest of your life. You hear it in churches all over the Bible Belt. We want people to make a decision for Jesus. Will you make a decision for Jesus? Can I tell you the biggest problem with that? Jesus did not send us out to make deciders. He sent us out to make disciples. And millions of people where we live have been victims to our poor, shoddy, lazy methods of saying, just make a decision. And we have sold people short on what it means to follow Jesus. We haven't even listened to Jesus himself describe what it means to follow Jesus. Why do you say, Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I tell you to do? I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that if you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, you need to make the decision to do that. You understand me? 
If you've never confessed your sin and turned from it and trusted in Jesus, you need to do it. If you've never trembled before the holiness of God, seeing your sin for what it is, and run to the cross where Jesus died for you, you need to make the decision today to do that. I just want you to understand that a decision that is not life-changing is a fake, phony decision. We saw the same thing in the parable. Jesus said, look, some of it falls on the, on the path and it's just hard and nothing happens. Some of it falls among the rocks and it pops up. Oh, it's a decision. But then it gets burned out by the sun. No good. Some of it falls among the thorns and it pops up and it grows. It's a decision. But then it just gets choked out. No good. We're looking for the kind of decision where the word of God falls on the good soil and it pops up and it grows and it produces a harvest. And some of you are sitting here and your wheels are turning and you're saying, okay, okay, okay. I'm listening to Jesus. He says, why do you say, Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And he says, I need to be like the man who hears Jesus' words and does them. I get it. And your wheels are cranking and you're saying to yourself, so how good do I have to be? Like, How much does my life have to change? How quick does my life have to change? Because I don't want to build on the sand and get washed away by this 20-foot wall of water that's coming down the canyon. I want to build on the rock. And I want to be secure. So how much do I have to do? How good do I have to be? How many changes do I have to make? And I understand the logic in your brain or my brain going in that direction. But I just got to tell you, you're asking the wrong question. If those are the questions you're asking, you're asking the wrong question. Listen to me. This is down at the bottom of your outline. This parable does not teach a form of work salvation. Jesus is simply describing the evidence of genuine faith. He's not trying to set some bar that you've got to measure up to. He's just simply saying to you, True faith in me results in this. It leads to this. And he's saying it to this crowd of people, massive crowd of people who would go home and say, yeah, I went out and listened to Jesus. It was a great talk. Man, that guy is a really good speaker. He's engaging. He seems to know the Old Testament. Man, that was fantastic. But nothing changes in their life. And he's speaking to people who live in the Bible Belt, who come to church every Sunday morning. And check off all the right boxes. But nothing actually changes in your heart. Nothing really changes in who you truly are. And he's saying this is what genuine faith will do to your life. It's why in the big idea, way back at the beginning, we started talking about life-changing faith. And genuine discipleship. You realize those words are totally redundant. There is no such thing as faith that doesn't change your life. But we've created that category in our minds. And so we've got to be clear. We've got to say, no, not just empty faith, not just agreeing with history faith, but life-changing faith. That's what Jesus is looking for, and that's what he's talking about. And the warning he gives to this crowd and the warning he gives to us is so sobering and so serious and so weighty, it's worth just listening to it one more time. And we're going to end with... Jesus' own words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, 
I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the warnings that Jesus gave, for his teaching, for his parables. Father, and as people who live in a a place where cultural Christianity is so prevalent, we are grateful for this wake-up call, for this reality check. And Father, we never want to question your goodness or your faithfulness. When you say that you will forgive and you will save, we believe that. When you, say when, you, when you say you can keep your people secure, you hold them, you keep them. Jesus says that no one can snatch us from his hand. We believe that. Father, but we also want to hear the very serious warning that Jesus offers to those who only listen to him. To those who only pay lip service. Father, and we never want the things that we do in this room to be about listening only. We always want it to be life-changing. We never want the songs that we sing in this room to be empty songs only, but we want them to come from our hearts. So, Father, as we take time this morning to respond to you and to examine ourselves, we pray that your Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted. We pray that your spirit would strengthen our faith in your promises where our faith needs to be strengthened. And in all of it, we pray that Jesus would be honored. We pray in his name. Amen.